without Christ. You know, this morning, it's actually not a similar picture, but it's a similar concept that we're engaged in. Because this is Palm Sunday, right? Most of us sort of know this. It's a hallmark holiday in our Christian faith. It's one of the sort of single greatest movements, right? This whole week called Holy Week begins today. It begins with what we call the triumphal entry. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophet Zechariah, and the people lay palm branches in the roadway, and they shout, and they proclaim great things. And this is an incredible day. Because it fulfills scripture and it leads us to what will be the greatest week in all of human history. And this morning what I want to do is I want to engage in the familiar, but I want to point us to something a little bit lesser known. As a reminder of exactly who Jesus was and really what he came to do. So just to catch you up to speed in history, right? This is a monumentous holiday. All the people are in town celebrating the Passover. There were three festivals or feasts in Jewish history in which people traveled to Jerusalem, and Passover was the largest one of the year. And you would travel from wherever you were, and you would go to Jerusalem to do a couple of things. One, you would go to worship and celebrate the fact that God delivered the Israelite people out of Egypt, right? That's what the holiday was about, God's protection, his provision, that the Holy Spirit passed over the Israelites during that time in Israel when he was doing incredible things, and he saved them and delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians. And they would go and they would celebrate, and they would have a giant feast, and they would make a yearly or annual sacrifice for the sins of their family. So they would gather together and they would celebrate by sacrificing a lamb for the sin of their entire family. And the streets of Jerusalem were packed. It's not a big city. It literally is a city built on a hill surrounded by walls. And it's about 2,500 feet above sea level up in the mountains. And you make this long journey up there and you cram in these walls and the city would have been full of people. But what made it even more amazing is that there was a lot of uproar and stirring and commotion going on about this person of Jesus. Everybody had heard about this guy traveling around the countryside doing the miraculous things, things that only God could do, or at least only a prophet of God could do. They had heard how he had fed 5,000, right? How he had uh, set people free, how he had given uh, hearing to the deaf, how he had cast out demons and raised people like Lazarus from the dead. They had heard these stories, and the people believed that the Messiah was coming, right? In fact, Zechariah chapter 9 says that they believed that the Messiah was going to come into town, into Jerusalem, to free them from Roman rule. Because Israel was under Roman occupation. And they believed that the Messiah was going to come into town, right? And he was going to set them up as a political powerhouse again. He was going to free them from Roman oppression. And just like King David, he was going to restore Israel to the Israel of old. A conquering political hero that would set the people free and reestablish them as the greatest nation. That's what the people were hungry for. It's what they longed for. It's what they were expecting. And And the hope and expectation was that this Jesus, that could do only the things that God could do, was that person. And there's anticipation in the air, right? And with Palm Sunday is a sort of a culmination of that anticipation. Because historically, what Matthew chapter 21 tells us is that Jesus came riding up from Jericho into Bethany. And once he got to Bethany, he found a baby donkey, right? Which is what Zechariah the prophet had told. And he laid a cloak on it, or his disciples laid a cloak on it, and he rode into Jerusalem. 
to the shouts and the cries of people that were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, right? It's a call from Psalm 118. Hosanna means uh, save now, right? Because they believed this Jesus was this conquering hero, or they had hoped that Jesus would be this conquering hero. Well, the irony that was probably lost on them, that's really lost on us today, is that those heroes usually came into town, as we know, not riding on the back of a baby donkey, but riding on a chariot or on a horseback or on a stallion or something great, coming into the fanfare, right? But Jesus, as the prophet Zechariah foretold, came riding in on the back of a baby donkey, hardly threatening, hardly powerful. Well, the people pulled branches off the trees, and they laid them in the roadway, which was a sign of royal homage that you paid to a king or to a hero as he came back from victory. You would line the streets with branches and with the cloaks off your back as a way of saying, this place, this place is yours as royalty. Well, Jesus came riding into town, not as the conquering political hero, but instead as the instrument of God, right? to bring to a close God's redemptive movement of history. And it's an incredible week, right? It's a week that's, that's marked with betrayal. It's a week that's marked with joy. It's a week that's marked with hatred. It's a week, a week that's marked with violence. It's a week that's marked with questions. But it's a week that changes everything. And as Jesus comes riding into town, it's, uh, Matthew 21 says that the whole town was stirred. And everybody asked, who is this? And they said, it's Jesus from Galilee. And all their hopes have been placed on his shoulders. But we don't pay attention to that often is that this journey actually began in Jericho in the early morning. Now, Jericho sat uh, about 750 feet below sea level. And Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level. And it's about a 17-mile journey from Jericho all the way up to Jerusalem. And this journey into the city of Jerusalem actually began in Jericho that morning. And we're going to look at it this morning because how it begins, I think, is an incredible picture of how this entire week is going to end. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open to Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to look at it together. A little different angle on Palm Sunday this morning, that I think fits in line with all the things that we've been talking about. So let's take a moment, let's turn there. Uh, 20, verse 29, let's start there, and then, um, yeah, let's do that, and let's pray. Lord, I thank you that your word is living and active. It is alive. God, these are not dead words on a page. They are your breath spoken to us. God, I pray that as we read them and as you move in our hearts, you would penetrate penetrate our spirit. You tell us that your word divides joints and marrow, soul and spirit, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. God, your word is you. And Lord, this morning, we're going to engage in the familiar, the familiar stories we've heard about Palm Sunday, the things that most of us have been raised with since we were kids. Maybe for some of us, it's relatively new, but for a lot of us, it was stories we've heard since we were kids. It's familiar. And sometimes the familiar loses its power. But, Lord, this is the most powerful truth. That it begins what will be the greatest week ever. That changes history and the world. That changes eternity. And so, Lord, today, although it was an ordinary day, it marks an unordinary day. 
a day in which everything changed. So Lord, teach our hearts this morning. Call us to see the world as you see it. As we talk about marked and marginalized women and we hear about our engagement with the folks at Novo and those at-risk kids, God, change your heart to let us see the world the way that you do. Change our hearts to help us see ourselves the way that you do. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to teach you something this morning. Maybe it's something you've heard a thousand times over. Or maybe it's fresh this morning. But ask God to speak to your heart directly. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you or in front of you, behind you, just wherever. If you know their name, pray for them by name. If you don't, just pray for them. Pray that God would move in them, that he would teach them, that he would meet them right where they are. Lord, we give this entire morning to you. Convict our hearts, teach our hearts, empower our hearts, minister to our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' perfect and holy name. Amen. So this journey of Palm Sunday, this triumphal entry, as your Bible may have a a little uh, tagline there, um, begins 17 miles away in the city of Jericho. It begins with an uphill journey, about 3,500 feet uphill over 17 miles. And it begins a little differently, but it actually, I think, casts an incredible picture on not only the life of Christ, but really what the real miracle is of this day. So you've got your Bible. Let's look at Matthew 21, uh, Matthew 20, 29. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called to them, What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, We want our sight. And Jesus had compassion on them, He touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. So it's not an unfamiliar story, right? We see Jesus doing this kind of thing all the time. And we look at miracles in Scripture oftentimes as isolated events, right? We see Jesus feed 5,000, or we see Peter walk on water, or we see Jesus give the deaf man his hearing. And we see these events, and we see them as isolated miracles, but very seldom do we see the context that goes around them. And the context which goes around them is actually, I think, as important as the miracle itself because it actually defines what we're seeing. Well, this faithful Sunday that's going to lead Jesus to the cross begins in Jericho. And everywhere Jesus went, as we know, it wasn't just a band of 12 traveling disciples and this guy named Jesus that were walking alone throughout the Judean countryside. That's not at all what was happening ever. Everywhere Jesus went, Huge crowds gathered everywhere. 
They were very seldom alone. Even the Sermon on the Mount began with Jesus trying to teach 12 disciples and an entire crowd broke out. In fact, we see scripture, Jesus having to cross the lakes on boats to avoid crowds. Everywhere he went, there were people. Because they all wanted to catch a glimpse. They all heard the stories. They all wanted him to heal their sick. They all wanted him to fix their lives. They could just get close enough. Crowds always gathered and they were always there. Well, this is no different. Jesus leaves early in the morning from Jericho to head into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. And there is a large crowd that is going with him. And they're making the journey following Jesus from Jericho to Jerusalem. And they barely get outside of town, right? Probably by the city gate. And there are these two blind men that are sitting by the side of the road. And they are shouting out when they hear Jesus come by. They hear all the commotion, right? They know that something's going on. They probably ask. Somebody says, this Jesus, and they start to shout at the top of their lungs, Jesus, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Which, of course, was a, uh, a messianic proclamation, this call of Son of David. The, the Jewish people believed that the Messiah was going to come from the line of David. And so these blind men sitting by the side of the road are the first on Palm Sunday to cry out to the Messiah, Right? Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And the crowd jumps into action, right? And they actually rebuke them. The word there is that they basically told them to shut their mouths, right? Which probably happened for a couple of reasons. One, because they were blind guys. And and people in those days that didn't have sight were seen as marginalized or the fringe of society. They believed that God was punishing them for their sin or for the sin of their families, And so therefore, they were outcast, unclean, and separated from normal human beings. That's what they believed. There were no special schools, no opportunities. You sat on the side of the road and you begged. That was your life. And there were two guys that had probably every day been walked outside the city gates by someone and sat down and they sat there and begged for money. And the crowd jumps to them to sort of stop them and tell them to close their mouths because, number one, they're just marginalized, fringe people. But two, they were also making this messianic proclamation, which would have basically been a death sentence and ultimately is. The reason Jesus is crucified is not because of what he did, but who he claimed to be. But also just because most people believe that Jesus had better things to do. I mean, all the time this happens where people believe that Jesus just has something better to do than to deal with the little small cries of people, which, of course, we know is never the case, right? So these guys start crying out, and the crowd rebukes them. They say, hey, listen, close your mouths. The text says, you know what they did? They just shouted louder. They just started screaming, Lord, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. And so Jesus does what he always does, and he stops. Whole crowd, right, not 12 guys, probably close to 100 plus, stop in the middle of the road on the 17-mile uphill walk to Jerusalem. And Jesus stops and he looks at these guys who are most likely sitting on mats, begging for money outside of the city of Jericho. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? I mean, what do you want? Right? And they said, Lord, we want to see, we want our sight. And it says that Jesus had compassion on them, and he touched their eyes. Immediately they could see, and they got up, and they followed him. Now, most of us aren't familiar with this portion of the Palm Sunday story, right? We're familiar with the idea of Jesus healing the blind and doing the miraculous. But when we put it in its context, it's really 
really powerful. Because think about it for a moment. I mean, if there's any day or any time where Jesus would be allowed to have a lot of anxiety, right? Outside of Thursday night after the Lord's Supper when he knows about to be betrayed, you would think it would be this day. Essentially, he is riding in his own death parade. Because Jesus knows everything. He is God in the flesh. He knows what's going to unfold over the next seven days. He knows that at some point in time, right, on that Thursday, he's going to be betrayed by every single person that he loves. That one of his closest friends is going to deny him to his very face. That he is going to literally be beaten, spit on, and murdered. And he knows he is going to take the sin of humanity in exchange for his glory. He knows all that. It's the reason he cried out in the Garden of Gethsemane on that night, saying, God, if there is any other way, Father, please take this cup for me. Jesus knew what was coming. So if there's any day that we would expect Jesus to be like, hey, I got a lot going on, trying to process some stuff, I'm going to get back to you guys later, or to just look at him and go, okay, look, you can see, you know, it's good, you got your eyes, you're fine, and just heal him with a passing thought, it would be that day. But what Jesus does is so remarkable to me. Because what the guys are asking for is mercy. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. They're asking for something much more specific than just their sight. Because oftentimes we use the words mercy and we use the words compassion interchangeably. But they're very different words, right? But they're very closely connected. So the idea of mercy is that God does not treat us as our sins deserve. So God's mercy is the idea that God does not treat you, he does not treat me as our sins deserve. We deserve death. The sinfulness in our lives has corrupted our very being, and we deserve to be eternally punished. The Bible is very clear about that. But God's mercy is that God does not treat us as our sins deserve. In fact, God's mercy is going to be poured out on the cross as he exchanges our sinfulness for his glory. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteous of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Exchanges, right, our death for his life, our sin for his glory. So when we say have mercy, we're saying God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. And basically they're saying, Lord Jesus, Messiah, have mercy on us. Because they were raised in a way that believed most likely they were being punished by God. Because their eyesight had been taken, and the connection in antiquity was that God was punishing you for your sin or the sins of your family. And so when they cry out to God, they're saying, Messiah, Jesus, Savior, the one, please don't treat me as my sins deserve. Right? But compassion is a very different thing. Compassion is a deep awareness of the hurt of someone else and a desire to relieve it. So when you have compassion for someone, you are acutely aware that they are going through something painful and hurtful, and you have this desire in your heart to relieve it. Now, it doesn't mean you always can, but when you have compassion on them, you have the desire, right, to relieve it. It's one thing for God to be merciful, to not treat us as our sins deserve. It's an entirely other thing for God to be compassionate, for God's heart to hurt with yours. So what do they say? They say, Lord, we want our sight. And it says what? Jesus had compassion on them. I find this amazing. 
In a moment where you would think that everything, I mean, we would get fault Jesus not if everything was about this traveling moment into Jerusalem. He has compassion on these two guys on the side of the road. It means he hurt with them. He saw their pain, what they had gone through, what they were dealing with, the cries in their voice, and he had compassion on them. And then it says that he touched their eyes, and immediately they could see. I love it when Jesus does stuff like this. I just love it. Because he doesn't have to, right? We all know that. Jesus could sneeze and heal these guys. He could look at them and go, you can see. In fact, we see moments in Scripture where Jesus heals people from far away. He doesn't have to be there. This is God, miraculous God, who made the stars and the earth and the trees and formed us with dust. But he stops there in the middle of this crowd, and he has the wherewithal to walk over to these men compassionately and to put his fingers, his holy fingers, in the very source where they attributed all their pain, all their hurt, all their punishment, whatever it was. He touched their eyes. Why? Basically because God's compassion and mercy are more than just about freedom or miracles, but it's about restoring hope and giving life. And he touches these gentlemen's eyes, the place where the whole rest of the world thought they were broken. The whole world looked at these guys and said, look what is wrong with you. This is why you're different. This is why you're not like the rest of us. And so what does God do? God touches them in that very place. And it says immediately they were able to see, and they followed him. I find this amazing for lots and lots of reasons, but it's just so personal. I mean, this is the way God is just so deeply personal. That he meets us in the middle of our deepest struggle and our deepest failure. And he has this mercy and compassion which is beyond comprehension. Like, I don't deserve any of it. Yet in the middle of my shame, in the middle of my hurt, in the middle of my failure, God's holy and perfect hand is there. It's really super inconvenient, too. I mean, I mean, if Jesus is ever in a hurry to get somewhere, it's probably there. Right? I mean, no one would blame him for just passing by and saying, hey, you can see. But he stops in front of everybody in the middle of the inconvenient. And he has this personal encounter with two guys that society had basically just said, your life is to basically be removed to the fringes. So just stay here forever. So as I think about this, and I've thought about this all week, it's not a new story, right? I mean, it's one that we've seen. I mean, Jesus, to the guy that was blind and deaf and mute, he takes his hand and he, he touches the man's tongue. We see Jesus do similar things. We, we see to the deaf guy, Jesus take his fingers and, and put him in the guy's ears. This is not a new thing. But the context to me makes it remarkably important. As I started thinking about it, I really started to understand this week that this is exactly what Jesus did for me. Like, it may not look like it on the outside. It may look like a, the sort of miracle, miracle healing of, of the blind getting sight. But this movement, this thing is exactly what Jesus did for me, and it's exactly what he did for you. 
that he took the place in your life of the greatest shame, the greatest sinfulness, the greatest hurt, the greatest discouragement, and he takes his miraculous, holy hand, and he sticks it right there. And not only does he say, I have mercy on you, I'm not going to treat you as your sins deserve, but he says, Treb, I love you, even in the middle of your pain and shame and failure. And oftentimes we see this movement of God that takes place where Jesus dies on the cross and, it's, and he dies for our sin and we kind of say that's amazing and I love it. But very seldom do we understand the personal connection that it has to our very lives. We think that Jesus died once for humanity, for all our sweeping sin and I'm caught up in the sea of people that Jesus died for. And that is true. But our God was a deeply personal God. And that death and resurrection was deeply personal for you and for me. And the Bible tells us that every hair on your head is numbered. And that God knows every moment of your life. Every thought you have before you will ever think it. And every shameful feeling and idea that's ever run through your mind. Everything that you've done that you wish you never had. And the things that you will never whisper out loud to another soul. God knows. And guess what? God still loves you deeply, passionately, and your hurt breaks his heart. And yet God reaches out in his miraculous holy hand and he touches the source of your brokenness. And he has mercy on you. And if this is all true, right, if I believe this to be true, I have to ask myself a question, and that is how does this change me? Because it changed the guys, right? I mean, what happens when Jesus gives them their sight? It says immediately they got up and they followed him. Now, what would, what would your life look like if, if the God of the universe had just come by and you were blind, let's say, for your whole life, and he gave you your sight? What would the first thing you do be? Would you run to go see the mountains? Would you go find your loved ones and, and want to put your, your hands on their face and gaze into their eyes for the very first time? No one would blame you. Right? Wouldn't blame you for running and checking out the sunrise or whatever those things are or what sights would go with these smells that you've always had or running and showing the entire world that it basically told you all you are is a beggar to say, look at me now. These guys, they get up and they followed him. They just followed Jesus. Now, I got to be honest. That walk is probably pretty cool, though, right? I mean, it's this giant up-the-mountain walk from, you can still take it today, actually. It's only traveled by, by feet or by uh, horseback, but you can still take it. And it's remarkable. It would have been pretty cool listening to these guys talk about the things they were seeing, but they were following Jesus, essentially saying, this guy gets my everything. Like, I want more of him. I want to go wherever he goes. See, most of us, we make these cries out to God, and then when we get what we want, we go on our merry way until we have another need that we want to cry out to God for. And our Christian life is usually filled from one cry-out-to-God moment to another, and we fill in the in-between with all the things that belong to us. These guys, they got up. I don't know what the rest of their life looked like, but for that moment, they got up and they walked with Jesus to Jerusalem. They followed him. He got their everything. 
I mentioned this last week. Jesus very seldomly gets my everything, right? Very seldom. Usually he gets my excess or he gets my abundance or he gets my convenience, my safety, my security. But very seldom does he get my everything. But this is what Jesus has done for us, right? And so then it begged this last question, which is a question we ask all the time around here, and I ask of you guys all the time, and that's, how does knowing this and seeing this change the way that we see the world? I mean, let's, let's be honest. Let's say this was your week, right? Most stressful, most difficult week in your life, by far. You know what's coming. You know the things that you're facing. You know how hard work's going to be or the struggles you're having at home or the financial battles that are going on or whatever it is in your life, you name it. Would you have even noticed the blind guys? Probably not. We don't have time for them at that point in time, right? Because most of the engagement we have with the world comes when we're at that place where we want to engage the world. But when we don't, everybody else around us becomes this enormous inconvenience. Even our family, work, whatever it is. Most of us, our vision changes based on what's happening in our lives. So in a week where we look at Jesus and say, hey, we'd give you a pass if you just want to ride by or heal him with a snap of your fingers. He gets down and does the improbable and the miraculous and he engages their life. Look, following Jesus is not convenient. It's not even close to convenient. In fact, it's probably radically super inconvenient. Because it calls us to do that. It calls us to stop in the middle of our me-centered worlds and say, I see people who Jesus loves. It calls me in the middle of my me-centered life and say, this whole thing is not about me. But maybe God wants to use me in a way to impact the world or to impact someone's world. Or maybe just maybe that one person at work that keeps asking me random questions, I pay attention to them. And I see that there is real pain or hurt or loneliness in their life. And instead of just being annoying, they become a person with a heartbeat who Jesus loves and cared for and died for. Following Christ is not convenient. It calls us to stop in the middle of whatever's going on and see the guys in the line of the grocery store. To make the phone call we don't want to make. To spend time with people that aren't always easy to spend time with. It makes us open our eyes and realize that there are people in our city that are dying. And there are kids that are dying without Jesus. And there are people around the world, women around the world, that are being sold into slavery. That are being marginalized. And that are being abused. And out of sight, out of mind, is not an excuse anymore. Palm Sunday... The life of Christ changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. This week changes everything. And the question for you and I is, why won't it change me? At least that's the question for my heart. So if it changes everything, why is it not changing me? This is what God did for me. I should want to get up and follow him and give him my everything. And it should radically change how I see the world. Next week, we're going to look at the incredible movement of Jesus that exchanged our death for his life.
But don't let this week go by without asking yourself those life-changing questions, right? But how does this change me? Why won't I give you my everything? And help me see the world, including myself, differently. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that it is timeless. It's a very familiar message. In fact, if coming to church here very long, you've probably heard something very similar because these are my favorite Jesus passages. They're my favorite ones. They're the ones where Jesus becomes extremely personal. God, we like to think of Christianity in its broad categories. We like to think of big sweeping movements that you've done and how you died for us on the cross and how you rose to give us life. And those are all true. But the personal moments in between are, I think, what makes it so remarkable. God, that you died for me. That God, in the middle of my sin, in the middle of my shame, in the middle of my hurt, in the middle of my brokenness, you reach out and you touch me personally. I'm not alone. I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be ashamed. Because, God, you have mercy and compassion on me. That you don't treat me as my sins deserve. And that, God, your heart breaks with mine. And that's the truth for all of us. That God does not treat us as our sins deserve. And his heart breaks with yours. God's mercy and God's compassion. God, I pray this morning as we close our time in worship that we would truly embrace this truth. That we would forgive ourselves from things that you've already forgiven us for. We would understand that your holy hand touches the most difficult and darkest places in our life. And those are not off limits to you. And that you cause us to want to see the world the way that Jesus did. Inconvenient as it may be, to live in a way that reflects 